You're listening to the micro version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, Taylor Swift won a bunch of Grammy Awards on Sunday night, including one that arguably should have gone to someone else. Cough, cough, Beyonce. The Super Bowl is coming up. Taylor Swift's football hero boyfriend, Travis Kelsey, is going to be playing in this Super Bowl. Travis is a tight end for the Kansas City Chiefs, or the tight end for the Chiefs. I don't know if a football team has more than one tight end, but I do know that he's playing for the Kansas City Chiefs. But I don't know that by heart. I had to look that up again for the third or fourth time. That's how gay I am. I am so gay that my gay brain refuses to store that information. I look up what team Travis plays for every time I have to talk about him here on the show. I say the name of that team out loud. And then my cerebral cortex, which is where long-term memories are stored, is like, no, thank you. Delete, delete, delete. There is no room in here for that. No room in here for trivia about football teams. Not with all this very important information we need to keep stored about original Broadway cast recordings of obscure musicals from the 1940s. Anyway, I'm a very gay person. I know a lot of very gay people. Some of the very gay people I know are very into Taylor Swift. Some are very into Beyonce. There have been arguments. Because gay people don't agree about everything. Water-based lube, silicone-based lube, puppies, gay cruises, even gay marriage. There is a lot of disagreement. But there is one thing that no one in the gay community seems to be arguing about, and that is Travis Kelsey's sexuality. Travis Kelsey is straight. Collectively, the gays came to that conclusion when he first pinged on our radar, which was not when he began dating Taylor Swift. It was when Kelsey hosted Saturday Night Live in April of 2023, which was after he won his Second Super Bowl, six months before his relationship with Taylor Swift went public. In that episode of SNL, Kelsey appears in a skit with the great and hilarious Bowen Yang that centered, as the queer studies kids like to say, Kelsey's bedrock, essential, obvious, and blatant straightness. As much as these girls mean to me, sometimes I need a break. That's when I discovered straight male friend. What's up? Yo, watch me headshot this bitch. friend is a low-effort, low-stakes relationship that requires no emotional commitment, no financial investment, and other than the occasional video game-related outburst, Ah, man, this game's stupid! No drama. Straight male friend isn't perfect and may ask blunt questions about your sex life. So, like, do gay guys like when a guy has a big one, or is it kind of, like, a bad thing? Depends on the guy. But he's only asking because he's honestly curious. There's something sweet about that. So if you're a gay man who needs a break, come discover the casual, low-effort friendship gay women have known about for years. Straight male friend. Yo, sorry about being a pussy about my dad dying earlier, man. That, that won't happen again. Straight male friend. Available everywhere. Except therapy. This video, which is hysterical, went viral, and gays who don't pay attention to football 
That would be a small subset of the gay community, sometimes referred to as all of us, every single one of us. Suddenly, we all knew who Kelsey was because he was in a skit with Bowen Yang. And that fake ad that he was in for straight male friend drew attention to his straightness in such a way that if there was any doubt among gay people about Kelsey's straightness, we would have aired it then. But it didn't happen. While a lot of gay men out there think Kelsey's hot, no one out there, no gay person out there thinks he's secretly gay. Which is saying something, because gay men are not immune to wishful thinking where hot straight male celebrities are concerned. The slightest hint that someone gay men think is hot might be gay, we are on that. Like those tidy whities were on Tom Cruise and Risky Business and like those cum gutters were on Shawn Mendes at the Met Gala. Gay men are like Kremlinologists back in the 1970s, always trying to figure out what was going on in the Soviet Union based on who was standing where on top of Lenin's tomb during the May Day Parade. Any hint, any clue, any evidence that someone out there that we might want to fuck might actually be fuckable, we're all over it. Which brings me to this tweet, a tweet that went viral last week. Why would a rich, famous guy, referring to Travis Kelsey, marry a 34-year-old woman, referring to the ancient Taylor Swift? If you started immediately, you might be able to have two kids, and she's publicly had sex with a ton of guys. It just seems weird, the tweet goes on. Why would a successful man like Travis Kelsey want a middle-aged woman who's always on tour? Is it? Could it be? Because he's gay. Some right-wing comedian who I'm not going to name, I'm not going to platform, a racist right-wing comedian banned from a lot of social media platforms, tweeted that out. It went everywhere. And the reaction to it, let's just call it the not heard around the world. Travis Kelsey is not gay. Listen, right-wing comedian, I promise you, my gaydar is better than yours. And gay wishful thinking is a powerful life force. And Kelsey doesn't ping on our gaydar and nobody who suffers from gay wishful thinking is thinking about Kelsey. He doesn't ping so hard that there was no wishful thinking infused speculation after Kelsey hosted SNL and we all found out at once that he exists. What we have here is a case of the dog that didn't bark in the night. Gay men saw Travis in that video with Bo and Yang, and no one said, secretly gay, could be gay, might be gay, we hope he's gay. Gay men saw him with Taylor Swift, and we didn't say anything. The right-wing obsession with Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey and all the conspiracy theories that the right is attempting to attach to this cute, fun couple, as David French wrote in the New York Times this weekend, it's all very deeply weird. And the speculation about Swift and Kelsey is really going to get dialed up to 11 this week in the run-up to the Super Bowl. Is Swift a Pentagon asset, which an actual host of an actual news program on Fox suggested this week? Is their relationship a massive psyop concocted by the deep state? The plan being all along for Swift to start dating Kelsey and then for Kelsey's team to win the Super Bowl and then for Swift to endorse Joe Biden live on national television right after Kelsey's team wins the Super Bowl, which they're definitely going to win because the fix is in because the entire NFL is in on this conspiracy. I can't believe that when people look at what the Republican Party is today, we still face competitive elections where Republicans 
might win anything, much less the White House. In our guts, we know they're nuts. But right-wingers, you got to listen to the gays on this. You got to take our word on this. I know how you right-wingers love your conspiracy theories, and I know conspiracy theories are fun, and believing bullshit together is one way for an in-group to feel connected. But you're going to have to let this one go. It's less plausible than Jewish space lasers or furniture companies shipping trafficked children to pedophiles inside dressers that they can order online. All of your dumb conspiracy theories make you look dumb. They make you look ridiculous. But this one? Look, if you won't take he's fucking Taylor Swift for an answer, if that's not good enough for you, take it from me and the rest of the gays. That football player who plays for that team I mentioned earlier, whose name I have already forgotten, he is not one of us. He is not gay, not even a little bit. And calling him gay doesn't make him any less straight or rich or famous or fuckable. And calling him gay, not that there's anything wrong with being gay, but you calling him gay out of jealousy and spite, not only doesn't make anybody think he's gay, it also doesn't make you right-wing comedians any less pathetic or any less unfuckable than you already are. All right, this week on the Micro and Magnum, Ezra Klein from the Ezra Klein Show, Ezra Klein from the New York Times is here. We take a sex question together, Ezra Klein. I don't know what he's doing here. I don't. My first question for him is, why are you demeaning yourself by coming on my sex podcast? But he does, and Ezra has, as Ezra always does, a lot of terribly insightful and intelligent things to say about sex and relationships and families and the nuclear family stuff he doesn't usually get into on his podcast or in his columns for the New York Times. But he gets into it today with me here on the Lovecast. A little bit of that is on the micro. All of my interview with Ezra is on the Magnum Savage Lovecast. If you're going to want to hear everything Ezra had to say, you're going to have to subscribe to the Savage Lovecast. Become a Magnum sub right now at savage.love. And speaking of perks for Magnum subs, next week, Valentine's Day, roses are red and stupid and a waste of money. Give your partner a Magnum subscription to the Savage Lovecast Instead of roses, just 40 bucks a year, your partner or partners will get the full Savage Love cast. Also, sex and politics, invites to Savage Love Live, and more. And our next Savage Love Live is actually going to be on Valentine's Day. If you want to be there or you want your partner to be there, subscribe, become a Magnum sub today at savage.love. All right, let's get to this week's show. This episode is brought to you by Helix Sleep, the best mattress for your individualized comfort. Right now, my listeners get 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows. Go to helixsleep.com slash savage. This episode of The Lovecast is brought to you by the good folks at Squarespace. They make it easy to build a beautiful website, blog, or online store. Head on over to squarespace.com slash savage for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code SAVAGE to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. This episode is brought to you by Talkspace, therapy made easy. Get $80 off your first month when you go to talkspace.com slash savage. Hey, Dan, 27-year-old gay man living in Indiana, of all places. I wanted to pick your brain about something that I've experienced with a few past partners. I just got into a relationship and it's 
been going for about two months, and this is the first relationship that I've been in about three years. So it's a little different because I used to be a serial monogamous. And something I'm experiencing in this relationship and that I've also experienced in past relationships with men is going to the gym together, we both seem to behave differently. As I said, I live in Indiana and I've lived in Michigan as well and dated in Michigan. And I've never had the opportunity to go to a gym that's queer centric or has good representation of like gay men, things like that. And I know um, I know there are gyms like that out there. There's just not a whole lot of them in Indiana and certainly not in Indiana where I'm from. So I'm always going to gyms that are presumably straight dominated spaces. And I'm sure that that plays a role in our behavior. Um, but I was just wondering if you had any advice on sort of how to break that ice at the gym, like how to break through that barrier with a partner. Because uh, in my experience, when I go to the gym with my current partner, there just seems to be this like veil of masculinity that kind of drops itself between us. And then we find it hard to connect with each other and talk with each other at the gym. We have to work out separately, which is, which I'm fine with because it would be distracting otherwise because my partner's fucking hot. But I just, yeah, I just wanted to know if you had any tips or tricks on how to have a conversation about like how behavior changes at the gym, even if we're just openly acknowledging it. Ideally, I'd like to be able to work through it to where we're behaving the same way both in the gym and out of the gym. So I go to a gym that's in a gay neighborhood. I've been going there for a really long time and about, oh my God, this is a long time ago, a decade ago, a decade and a half ago, there was some new guy, I'm assuming, at this mostly gay gym and there were two guys in tights, and this was before everybody started wearing compression tights to the gym, and one kissed the other on the cheek, and this guy who was on one of the bench press machines grumbled at them very audibly about, like, knock that shit off at the gym. Don't want to see that at the gym. And this other guy who I knew and I knew was straight, this big black guy who went to the gym who was straight, looked at the guy who just barked at the gay guys for being obviously gay guys at the gym, looked at him and tapped him on the shoulder and said, you're at the wrong gym. It was such a delicious, wonderful moment. You rarely, you know, you hear about allies all the time. You rarely see that kind of, I don't know, allyship in public. I wish I'd gotten it on film. Love that guy. Thanked him later, circled back to him after the guy left the gym. It was like, you're awesome. That was amazing. We, we were friends. We'd met at the gym a bunch of times. Super nice straight guy. And he was just like, yeah, yeah, he's at the wrong gym. Why do you behave with your boyfriend the way you do when you're at the gym? Because you guys are at the wrong gym. You're at a gym in Indy fucking Anna or you're at a gym in rural Michigan somewhere. What you're engaged in is called code switching. When you're relaxed and comfortable and feel safe, you're a little gayer. You're not policing your behavior. When you're at this gym full of mostly straight guys in Indiana fucking somewhere. Why do you butch it up? Because some part of your reptile brain is aware that if you're as gay as you usually are, or unselfconscious about your behavior and mannerisms and relationship as you usually are in other places, other circumstances, that you could get attacked, that somebody could, you know, say something mean to you, some people regard a mean thing being said to them as a kind of violence. And there's also the risk of actual violence, actual gay bashing. So you and your boyfriend butch it up at the gym. 
I am not blaming or shaming you for that. You should see me. We have to drive, me and Terry, across Washington State, sometimes to go see his mother in Spokane at the other end of Washington State. There is no such thing as a blue state. They call Washington a blue state. There are no blue states. There are red states. Some of them have big blue cities in them that flip them into the blue column, but it is an archipelago of blue cities in a big red sea. That is the United States. You should see me when I have to walk through a truck stop in rural Washington state under the Trump flags for sale to get to the bathroom. I am so butch. I never look straighter than I do at that moment because I don't, some part of me just doesn't want to die. So I'm not blaming you for butching it up at the gym. I butch it up at the truck stop in Ellensburg every single time. What do you do? How do you get to be more comfortable? Well, go to the gym, go a lot. I guarantee you, whatever gym you're in, wherever you're at the gym, you are not the only gay men in that gym. One of the funny things about gay men, you can't get us into the gym in high school and you can't get us out of the gym after. You aren't the only guys there. Everybody else there who's gay at your mostly overwhelmingly straight gym is engaged in the same kind of code switching successfully that you two are, so you can't spot them. As you make friends at the gym, guys who are gay are gonna let you know, perhaps some of them just through sustained eye contact, they're gonna let you know that they're gay, and you will feel more comfortable and more safe in time. Safer, certainly, than I will ever feel at that truck stop in Ellensburg. This episode is brought to you by Helix Sleep, the official mattress of the Savage Lovecast. I have a Helix mattress. My boyfriend has a Helix mattress. My guest room has a Helix mattress. Your imagination can take it from there. The Helix lineup offers 20 unique mattresses, including the award-winning Lux Collection. Those are our mattresses. The newly released Helix Elite Collection, a mattress designed for big and tall sleepers, and even a mattress made just for kids. To figure out which mattress is right for you, take the Helix Sleep Quiz to find your perfect mattress in under two minutes, and then your personalized mattress will be shipped straight to your door free of charge. And with their 100-night sleep trial, you can try out your new mattress, see how your body adjusts, and if you decide it's not the best fit, you are welcome to return it for a full refund. Helix offers models with memory foam layers to provide optimal pressure relief if you sleep on your side, or models with a more responsive foam to cradle your body for essential support in stomach and back sleeping positions. Helix mattresses also include enhanced cooling features to keep you from overheating at night, and if your spine needs a little extra TLC, they got you. Every Helix mattress has a hybrid design, which combines individually wrapped steel coils in the base with premium foam layers on top. It is the perfect combination of comfort and support. And again, Helix offers a 100-night trial to try out your new Helix mattress and a 10 to 15-year warranty. And right now, Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for my listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash savage with Helix. Better sleep starts now. Hey, Dan. I have a question about how to give advice to my brother-in-law about my sister. Sister's an alcoholic. She's cheating on my brother-in-law. Recently, things got into an argument in which my sister threw a bench through a window that my niece was standing in front of. My niece is 12. And my brother-in-law's been bouncing around with the idea of divorce and separation. But after this event, the next day, my brother-in-law told me that they were going to try and work things out. 
I love my sister, but she is in a terrible, terrible place and it's affecting other people. She's a diagnosed narcissist and an alcoholic and anxiety and all those things. How do I talk to my brother-in-law who is about 20 years older than me, my sister is 15 years older than me, about maybe separating not just for his own sake, but at this point now for the kid's safety. Escalating situations have happened before this, but this is scaring me because it is getting physical. Here's what you do. You go to your brother-in-law and say, look, if you need to divorce my sister, do it. And you have our support and you will not lose our support. We will not side with her and we will still be there for you in this process and we will still consider you a member of the family. You can divorce my terrible sister without feeling like you've wronged or betrayed us because we can see what's going on here. And you have our love and support. Whatever you choose to do, if you choose to work on this right now, work on it. But if you need to leave, please don't feel like letting the family down or losing us as family is a price you're going to have to pay to exit this marriage or do what you need to do for yourself and for your daughter, my niece. That can really tip the scales. I've seen it in my own family tip the scales. When there is someone who's married into the family who's thinking about getting a divorce, hearing from members of the family that we understood the reasons why they needed to get that divorce and they would still be welcome at family events and they would not lose that web of connection. You know, when you marry someone, you marry into a family and you create a kind of wider society for yourself. And one of the things that sometimes prompts people to stay in shitty relationships that they need to get out of is fear, fear of losing those social, emotional, and familial connections. And it could make all the difference in the world for your brother-in-law to hear from you and hear from you now that if he's doing this, going through these motions because he doesn't want to be alone next Christmas he will not be alone next Christmas. He will still be welcome at family events, even if he has to divorce your shitty, out-of-control, narcissistic sister. And if she has a problem with that, then she's not going to be welcome at Christmas. That you will choose the functioning, healthy, responsible, sober relative, even if it's not the blood relative, over the drunken, out-of-control, raging, narcissistic relative. So... Call him, tell him that. And then you got to respect whatever it is that he decides to do. If he wants to work on it, if she's going to get sober, if they're going to go into couples counseling and try to save this relationship, tell him you will support him through that process too. But let him know you're not blindly loyal to your sister just because she's your blood relative, that he is your brother in law and you are loyal to him too. And you will be there for him too. And you will be there for him after. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Whether you run a business and want to make all the money or you're an artist or musician, Squarespace can help you to build a great website with the bells and whistles you'll need. If you're just getting started, you can load in one of their professional website templates with designs for every category and use case. 
Then customize your look, update content, and add features to fit your unique needs. You can make any Squarespace template do what you want so your idea, brand, or business stands out online on every device. You can easily sell custom merch and create a passive income stream that engages your audience and scales your brand. Design your products, and then production, inventory, and shipping are handled for you, saving you time and money. Then sell your products on an online store. Whether you sell physical, digital, or service products, Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online. You can use their asset library. Upload, organize, and access all your content in one place. With the new asset library, you're able to manage all your files from one central hub and use them across the Squarespace platform. And I could go on and on. Don't walk, run to squarespace.com savage for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code savage to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com savage and use the offer code savage. Hey, Dan, 30 year old straight dude, Magnum sub, big fan. I'm sitting here with not quite my girlfriend, but a woman who I've really fallen for we've been seeing each other for the past year and everything about this relationship the sex the communication the way we've resolved conflicts it's been the best of my life it's been incredible the only issue is that she wants kids and i know i don't i've got a vasectomy we knew this from the start of our relationship so we're breaking up we set ourselves a date a while back of when this thing was going to come to an end and that date is approaching less than a month now. Yeah. So I guess my, my question for you is how can we enjoy these last few weeks together? I've had the time of my life with this woman and I want to continue having good times, but it's really painful knowing that we're going to be exiting each other's lives pretty soon. And then when that day does come, I guess my second question is how can we heal from this we really want to be friends later on we're planning on taking some time apart and not talking for a while and then circling back but if you had any advice on how to best handle the situation that would be greatly appreciated joining me to help answer this question because why not ezra klein he is a journalist a political analyst a new york times columnist and host of the ezra klein show podcast. Ezra, thank you so much for demeaning yourself by coming on my show. Uh, I am thrilled to be here demeaned. Yeah, Ezra, this is a sex advice podcast like the Port Authority bus terminal. It's beneath you. I feel like there's a dynamic here of people getting sex advice from their their grandpa or their lame math teacher or something. I I appreciate you inviting me on. I don't think this is really what anybody wants to hear from me. <laughs> <laughs> but I enjoy talking to you, so I am I'm glad to be here. We talked when I was on your show a lot about yes. polyamory and open relationships, and right now, suddenly— Having a moment. It's all anybody can talk about besides Israel and Gaza and Ukraine and Russia and the Houthis and the climate and housing and Donald Trump and Nikki Haley and Tim Scott's entirely credible fiancé. Polyamory is the only thing anyone is talking about at the moment. You moved to the West Coast for a few years, where you encountered poly straight people in their natural habitat, San Francisco. I'm curious— the poly people that you encountered, were they annoying poly proselytizers or normie-adjacent kind of socially monogamous poly people who it took some time for you to realize that you had met some poly straight couples? Uh, oh, I think it was a much more mixed group than that. It wasn't a lot of proselytizers. I mean, my community in um, the Bay Area was much more queer. 
And so when you say, did I meet a bunch of, of poly straight people, that wasn't sort of how my friend group or how the people I knew broke down. And it's actually been something that's been annoying me a little bit a little bit about the, the New York coverage here. It does have this quality of <laughs> New York media circles just discovered people are polyamorous in Park Slope like a month ago. <laughs> yeah. And I, I feel like it's robbed of a lot of the kind of cultural tributaries I understood as being there. You know, because I grew up in California and I lived in D.C. for a long time and then came back to the, the Bay Area for, for four or five years. And there it's much more clear that you're dealing with these sort of overlapping circles of, and this is what we talked about when you were on my show, Dan, sort of queer relationship norms that have become more influential and more often adopted by by straight or straightish couples. I mean, a lot of the non-monogamous couples I knew had either both partners or one partner in it was bi or had other kinds of explorations that were important for their happiness to, to, to be doing. You have the sort of communes and more hippie and alternative living of the 70s. And then you have the the sort of weird-ish <laughs> – actually, it's funny for me to describe anybody, and this is weird. But you have the, the sort of Silicon Valley world, which had adopted parts of it. And so the, the sort of stereotypical version of it before the stereotype was Park Slope was, you know – tech, C-suite people who, et cetera. But, but it was clear when you were there that, that it was these different cultures that were all rubbing up against each other, literally and figuratively, in the, in the Bay Area that had created the, this cross-pollination. And then here, I think all that's been lost. And um, all of a sudden, it, it has a strange quality of, wait, why are people in Brooklyn dating each other? Which just robs it, I think, of a little bit of richness and, and what makes it interesting to me, which is the fact that the different norms from different places are uh, are getting adopted a little bit more. I don't want to call it universally, but are breaking down the expectations for what is and isn't normal and, and what is and isn't possible in people's lives. Because of that loss of sort of perspective or any sense of the history of it or these cultures and cross-pollinizations, you have bad actors on the right who are pointing to this moment polyamory is having – the story in The New Yorker, The New York Times, New York Magazine, even The New York Post, not as evidence that a memoir came out about polyamory and whoever that wrote that memoir had a really good PR person, but a plot on the part of the left to destroy the nuclear family. When you and your spouse lived in San Francisco, you as a couple knew poly people, knew people who were practicing polyamory. Did your nuclear family survive the onslaught or was your nuclear family destroyed by this exposure to other people practicing polyamory, which is what Matt Walsh is arguing is going to happen? I, I remember when it was gay marriage was going to destroy my nuclear family. <laughs> so I thought a lot about this, actually. And I and this gets at some shows I, I want to do in the, in the coming weeks. I think this is exactly backwards. So there, as you mentioned, what, what was actually the, the sort of kernel around which all of these magazine pieces and newspaper stories got built was this memoir, which I have not myself read, but which is from a, a Brooklyn writer about her open marriage. And the book I'm really interested in right now, which is coming out in a couple of weeks, although may have come out by the time this airs, is called Other Significant Others by Raina Cohen. There's sort of polyamory happening on the edge of it, I would say. But it's about people who put friendship at the center of their lives and much more build these very non-traditional, what I would call families, right? Uh, what happens when you treat your best friend like family? What happens when you begin raising a child with people who are not your romantic partners, but just people who love your child and who you're good at co-parenting with? And, and to me, polyamory and questions about alternative family structures and 
uh, questions of putting friendship at the, the center of your life. And, and these are all things that have been thought about deeply in queer communities and other alternative communities for a very long time. I think there's a lot of catching up here being done. But it, it's all dealing with the fact that that nuclear family is already breaking down. That first, a nuclear family has not been the norm uh, since the 50s, 60s, 70s. And it was only the norm for a pretty punctuated period of time. So now you have a lot of people who are growing up in single-parent families. Um, you have a lot of families that are, you know, blended between divorces. But you also have the loss, the for many people, the absence of the way human beings traditionally did child raising and community and, and, and all of it, which is the extended family. I mean, for most of human history, you did not have this thing of two parents and one to three kids. You definitely didn't have it with two parents both have full-time jobs and are somehow trying to raise one to three kids. And it's not working for people to say nothing of them when you only have one parent. And th this worry that something is going to break the nuclear family, it's so nuts because a nuclear family has already broken. It is very, very, very difficult to raise kids with this little support. It is very, very lonely for people when they begin putting everything on their spouse to be their confidant, their social community, their best friend, their second best friend, their sexual partner, their you know job coach, all of it. Mm -hmm. And people are away from their families and they're away from extended care networks. And they're, they're, to me, a lot of what is happening in all these conversations and dynamics is like what I think of as, as this effort to figure out the post-extended family world, which obviously many people still do live near their extended families, but, but many people don't. And so they do that we're going to destroy something. People are trying to figure out what to do in the wreckage. It already happened. You know, it feels like we're not answering the question, but I feel like actually we kind of in a sneaky way have already begun to answer the caller's question. Before we get really specific about it, I do want to say that this sense of the nuclear family is breaking down, that there's this loss of the traditional ways or traditional for the last 60, 70 years, that nuclear family, two parents alone with the mom at home not working, that going away, and it's already kind of gone away, and there's this sense of loss. Paradoxically, the, what you describe, like a network of lovers and friends and this kind of sprawling, non-traditional family, some queer people feel like gay marriage, which you know privileges the couple uh, that marries, in a sense, threatened what had been a kind of traditional way that gay people structured their family lives and their relationships, which was these kind of informal networks of lovers and friends, which was great, except, you know, when you showed up at a hospital and the parents that your boyfriend hadn't spoken to for 20 years came rolling in and threw you out. That, you know, gay people with the absence of marriage didn't have that ability to determine who our own immediate next of kin was, and marriage is how you do that. Unless we create some alternate way to do that, marriage has is what the AIDS crisis proved to gay people was was absolutely necessary and crucial that we secure that right. Other significant others has such a good discussion uh, of this exactly the the dynamics you're talking about and 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 trying to think about exactly this tension that both marriage had all these legal rights and and social recognitions that were that were and are necessary, and also that it shouldered out it muscled out 
Mm. This possibility of seeing more expansive forms of care, also of legal recognition, right? I mean, uh, to me, the most affecting uh, chapter, and you surely have Raina Cohen on the show. Uh, to me, the most affecting chapter was actually about about co-parenting and, and cohabitation, which is the set of things that, that I personally think about most. One of my deep beliefs about all of this is that if you <laughs> if you know polyamorous people, you, you know that polyamory isn't the answer. If you know monogamous people, you know that monogamy isn't the answer. If you know people parenting in a two-parent family, you know that's not the answer. In a single-parent family, you know that's not the answer. There's no answer here. There's no one thing that is going to work for everybody. People have different needs. They need different amounts of alone time. They need different amounts of support. People have children. Their children are different. Some people are – some children have very high needs. We are going to need a lot of answers for (laughs) – what is the the reality of this, which is a lot of people in a lot of different situations, whether what your income is uh, really shifts what you can do. I mean, a lot of richer families are basically able to purchase. They, they, they buy. We buy. You know, some of the help that you would have once gotten from an extended family, right, in terms of nannies and house cleaners and, and, and so on. But a lot of, you know, but most people can't afford a lot of that. And so there, there's just the aspects of chosen family, the aspects of fluidity here. Right, the, the need to formalize some things, but also have things that are not highly formalized. Uh, that mm-hmm. to me is the space that we we need to enter into a, a recognition that we are. People often talk about the, these other ways of structuring things as experimental. The thing I always want to say is we are living through the experiment now. This way of raising children, this way of doing family, this way of doing marriage with divorces, but also the amount of weight we put on the partner and marrying for love, this is all an experiment. And a bunch of parts of the experiment are not working well, and we need to have more experiments, right? We do not know the answer. There is going to be no one answer, and we're going to need to accept fluidity without becoming so unbelievably afraid of trying to figure things out when the things we're already trying are not working that well. You call it fluidity. And what I see, that that network of friends and lovers that gave family networks in the absence of the right to marry, those were really kind of contingencies and workarounds and patches. It seems to me that what we need are marriage rights, but also bringing those contingencies and workaround and patches, that wider community, to our marriages. And I feel really lucky the way I grew up. I grew up in a a tiny apartment building with two apartments. My mom, dad, four kids in one apartment. My grandparents, aunts, and uncles in the other apartment. I grew up with that kind of network and then raised a kid without that network. And raising a kid, even just one kid without that network, was infinitely harder. Which brings us to this question. Let's, Let's address the question the caller actually asked. How do I enjoy our last weeks together when the relationship is doomed, is it possible for them to stick the dismount and be friends? They're both so sad. Backing all the way up to the question, Ezra, what's your advice? How do they enjoy this time together? All right. We said we'd have some Ezra on the micro, and we have. We just did. For all of Ezra, you're going to need to subscribe to the Magnum Savage Lovecast. If you want to hear the rest of my conversation with Ezra Klein, if you want to hear the New York Times Ezra Klein giving sex advice on the Savage Lovecast, you're going to need to subscribe to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. You can get a month for just eight bucks. Listen to the rest of this episode and as many Magnum Savage Lovecast episodes and sex and politics episodes as you can stuff in your ears. Then if you want to commit to a full year, it is just 
40 bucks, which is cheaper than the cheapest Substack subscription, and you get at savage.love a lot more. Become a Savage Love Magnum subscriber. Become one of my subs now. We would so appreciate it by going to savage.love. This episode is sponsored by Talkspace. I know from listening to so many of your calls that a lot of folks out there need therapy. I'm one of those folks out there that has needed therapy. It is easy, I know, to make excuses, to put it off, and not being able to find the time to get to an appointment or afford therapy, those may be the top two excuses. That's where Talkspace can really help you out. Because by doing everything online, Talkspace has made getting the help you want and need easy, accessible, and affordable. With Talkspace, you can sign up online and get a personalized match with a provider that's right for you, typically within 48 hours. It's so convenient to have these virtual sessions with your licensed therapist from the comfort of your own home. There's no need to commute to appointments. You won't have to miss time at work or line up childcare in order to attend your sessions. It's mental health care made easy. Talkspace also lets you send messages to your therapist so you don't have to wait for your next appointment to roll around to get a little input and help. Talkspace can help with any specific challenge you might be facing. It's the number one online therapy platform with licensed therapists in over 40 specialties, including anxiety, depression, substance abuse, LGBT issues, and much more. Talkspace is affordable and in-network with most major insurers. And as a listener of this podcast, you will get $80 off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com slash Savage. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash Savage to get $80 off your first month. Let them know the Lovecast sent you by going to Talkspace.com slash Savage. Again, for $80 off your first month. Hi, Dan. I'm a bit of a moral quandary involving a past affair. The Cliff Notes version is that in 2021, I cheated on my then wife with a female friend, which led to dramatic upheaval in my own life, including getting a divorce and distancing myself from my former friend and her partner, who was also a friend. Since then, her partners continued to occasionally reach out to me to reconnect. The issue is she never told her partner anything close to the truth about our affair, only a minimized, glossed-over version of it. Now he, a genuinely nice guy and a new father, wants to reconnect and rebuild his and my friendship. I privately emailed her to check in and told her that I no longer wanted to maintain this lie and that I was ready to have an honest conversation with him about our past. She firmly said no and downplayed the significance of our past. I'm torn. I consider myself a changed man, one who's transparent and values honesty in all his relationships. I wouldn't want this to be kept in the dark if I were him either, and yet I do miss him and wish I could rebuild a friendship from a foundation of honesty and respect. But I also don't want to disrupt their family life, especially with a newborn baby and how adamant she was about keeping the truth from him. Maybe she thinks it'll affect him more than I do, or maybe she just doesn't want the drama Either way, I can't help but wonder if he would still want this friendship if more truth were revealed to him. I miss him and want to be friends, but I won't rebuild our friendship on a foundation of dishonesty. Do I just block his number with no explanation? I feel like that would be hurtful to him, too. Honest to God, what I said out loud after I listened to your call, 
when the tape wasn't running was shut the fuck up and go the fuck away. They have a new child. They have a baby. It is awkward and it puts you in a terribly awkward position that they are trying to, or he is trying to reconnect with you. And you have this very painful history with his wife. You had an affair with his wife that led to the collapse of your marriage. And you don't sound like a bitter, vindictive guy. There's nothing in your call, in your question, the way you framed it, your tone of voice, anything that sounds bitter or vindictive. But your allegiance to fixation on being fully honest and acquainting this guy as a condition of reconnecting, of having a friendship with exactly how terribly his wife, the woman with whom he just had a baby, betrayed him with you, whether or not that's coming from a good place, I don't see what good that could possibly do at this moment for them or for that innocent kid. So if the cost of having you back in his life is you being brutally honest with him about something that he may have suspected, something that he knows he got the glossed over version of and has chosen not to dwell on and has preferred to believe maybe the glossy, incomplete version that he was told because the greater good was saving his marriage. And maybe that's an illusion, but maybe he chose that illusion and he would like to be friends with you, but he would also, particularly at this moment with a new infant, a new child at home, he would rather not be disillusioned. And maybe now's not the time for that disillusionment. And if you can't be in his life without being punishingly and perhaps honest with him in a way that seems like it could be from some certain angle viewed as a kind of retaliatory move, this affair, you didn't escape unscathed, your affair partner did, are there lingering resentments there? Maybe. If so, understandable. But I would encourage you to do the, I don't want to call it the right thing because we're always supposed to say honesty is the right policy, but to focus on the greater good, which is go make some other friends. If being your friend means this marriage, their marriage, is going to have to go through some things, have its turn in the barrel, that it may not survive. Because essentially what you're saying is that your friendship is going to come at a cost. A lot of that cost may ultimately be paid by their kid, not your affair partner who escaped unscathed, not your old friend, her husband that you'd like to reconnect with, but that kid. I don't think your friendship right now, I don't think it's worth it. All right, before we get to this week's listener response calls, I want to share a couple of listener comments posted on last week's show at savage.love. Says Jen, as a regular user of Field, I can confirm that there are a lot of pics of women and men and others without faces. My advice to the caller, put on your big girl panties, ask for a face pic, and then if you're not feeling it, say, hey, thanks for the chat, not feeling it, wish you Look, you don't have to say, I think you're ugly, bye. He'll know it was the face pick, and I promise you, he will survive 
the experience. Says Marsh LC, to the woman with the drinking boyfriend, her reaction sounds like classic adult child of alcoholic stuff, trying way too hard to control things that are not actually under your control. It doesn't seem like she's addressed this, the caller has addressed this in a useful way, so my feeling is that a relationship with a heavy drinking man is not right for her at this time. And finally, says Laura, the show with Dulce Sloan, is it just me or was that a really depressing episode of the Lovecast? What's with most men want to kill us or take away our right to vote? Sure, it's not a great time to be a woman. When has it ever been? But come on, is it really that bad? Yes, it is. For 50 years, the right talked about stripping women of their constitutional right to control their own bodies, to terminate unplanned pregnancies, and they did it. We weren't alarmed enough. The number of people out there who insisted that anyone who said, hey, maybe you don't love the Democratic candidate for president, but think of those judicial appointments. We were accused of being alarmist and trying to manipulate people. And now here we are. And the same people who were talking about stripping women of their right to abortion are now talking about stripping women of their right to vote, which isn't a right women have enjoyed since the dawn of our republic. Look, the right plays a long game. They meant what they said about abortion. They mean what they're saying right now about contraception. And I'm sorry, but all of this talk lately about stripping women of their right to vote, we should be alarmed. They mean it. We try to keep it light here on this sex and relationship podcast. Some weeks, Nancy has to talk me out of doing an intro that's just 10 minutes of me banging my head on the desk. But every once in a while, we gotta raise the alarm. And this talk from the right about ending women's suffrage, yeah, it's alarming. And I'm going to continue to raise the alarm. All right. For more listener comments and more of my responses, check out Struggle Session, a weekly bonus column from Magnum Subs. goes up every Thursday at savage.love. It is also where you will find our Muppet-faced Man of the Week. And now, listener response calls. This is a response to the woman who wondered how to meet men and felt, as she put it, like time is running out to be a mother. Dan's advice about motherhood options was very good, and also that you can be upfront in your profile about wanting a family. That is an important point of connection for you with any man you're going to start seeing. My only suggestion is to be aware of your wording. I'm an elder gay who started dating after my husband passed, and I know there are significant differences in our circumstances, but one thing that caused me to skip profiles were ones who had things like looking for my soulmate, looking for my life partner, etc. Those felt like I would be submitting for an audition. I think that long-term ideal is implied in the dating process itself. Your family goals are absolutely relevant to include, but maybe have a friend proofread the rest to make sure it doesn't sound like a casting call. Hi, Dan. This is in response to the caller who was asking about etiquette on field for faceless photos. So I was actually on the other side of that. I live in a liberal area, but I was on field for kink reasons, and I'm a pretty private person when it comes to my sexuality. So I didn't really want to run into people I knew, and I have seen people I knew on every single dating app, including field. So what I did is I had a cover photo of me from far away, so you could at least see what my body type was, but 
there was nothing identifying about it. And then when I would connect with people, I had a paid membership so that they could then see my face photos once we were connected. And I would consider it if somebody connected with me, looked at my photos, wasn't feeling it, and then disconnected with me, I was not the least bit offended. And I consider it the same if somebody even just has to send you a photo of their face. I think at that point, if you're not feeling it, you can just disconnect. It's basically the same as swiping left at that point, but just with a little added element of privacy. Also, funny story, I also used a different name when I was on field, which seemed pretty common. And I was really good about telling people my actual name before going on dates with them. But there was one guy that I forgot with. And it created this really awkward moment as he was going in for the kiss and then called me the wrong name. But I ended up marrying him last year. So I guess we figured it out. Hello, Savage Love Gang. This is a response to a caller that was on your Enough with the Polly show. For the woman who had said she was engaged in a relationship with a guy long distance, and they had used their cameras, but they had never met in person, and she's asking, should she consider that she's dating this guy? Oh my God! I wanted to just scream, throw the phone across the room, and beg this woman, no, no, no. No, you've got to meet this person in person. Several months is too long. I've had this happen. I've been down this road. And my girlfriend of 11 years, the guy that she dated before me briefly, she had this happen where you build up something online and you haven't met them in person yet. And then you see them, you're with them physically for the first time and you immediately realize like, oh no, Don't even think about it. Go see the guy as soon as possible and then decide if you're in a relationship. Oh my God, I was so horrified. And we're going to leave it there. There are three ways for you to get us your questions or comments for a future show. You can record your question or comment at savage.love slash askdan, or you can make a voice memo on your phone and email your question or comment to q at savage.love, or you can call us and leave us a message at 206-302-2064. This weekend in Seattle, I will be hosting the opening of Hump 2024 Part one at On The Boards, and the show continues around the world, Hump Part One. Streaming dates will be announced in June. Maybe I will see some of you this weekend in Seattle. I'll also be hosting shows in Portland and San Francisco and Berlin. Go to humpfilmfest.com to find out when Hump and possibly me are coming to a city near you. A special Valentine's Day Savage Love Live goes down for my Magnum subs at noon Pacific time on February 14th. Get your question to me early by going to savage.love and clicking on Ask Dan at the top of the navigation bar. Hope to see all of you, my Magnum subs there for our first ever Savage Love Live on Valentine's Day. Follow me on Instagram and threads at Dan Savage. Follow me on Blue Sky at Dan Savage. And I am still on the bad place at fake Dan Savage. You should be reading Ezra Klein at the New York Times. You should be listening to Ezra Klein's terrific podcast, The Ezra Klein Show. And you can follow Ezra Klein on threads at Ezra Klein. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and Nancy and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.